Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on May 1st, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk to Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina about the contents of the May issue of the magazine, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. So without any further ado, the cover article of the May issue, Mariette, your inner healer's reprogramming cells from your own body could give them the therapeutic power of embryonic stem cells without, hopefully, the political controversy. So let's talk about, you know, what's embryonic stem cells, what are these things, and and what is the potential here? Okay. So just to back up really quickly, embryonic stem cells, which many in the listening audience I'm sure have heard of, have been exciting to people in theory because they could present a lot of potential for cures. The idea is this. At the embryonic stage, a cell could become any one of the 220 different types of cells in your body. So for instance, you have uh, bad kidneys. Maybe in theory, you could take an embryo's stem cells and they could become kidney tissue, which then could be used for transplantation. That's one of the many intriguing things about embryonic stem cell therapy. It could be used to grow different kinds of organ, other organ tissue, heart cells, nerve cells for diseases such as Parkinson's or ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. Many of these really currently unsolvable diseases could be addressed in theory with embryonic stem cells that could be made to become any number, uh, any one of a number of uh, 200, 220 different kinds of cells that exist in your body. But you mentioned the controversies. Embryonic stem cells make numbers of people uncomfortable with the idea that even an embryo that's only a couple hundred cells, some people believe that that destruction of that embryo is problematic. What's interesting about this article, and I want to talk about the other kinds of stem cells too because they're directly relevant. What's interesting about this article is it describes a new technique that takes any cell in your body, let's say your skin cell, Steve, and you can reprogram it or restart the clock to get it to the stage where it acts like an embryonic stem cell again without having to have removed that cell from an actual embryo. This is what's so intriguing. The, the term for this, this technique and what it does, it creates cells called induced pluripotent stem cells. And now, well, induced, I think you can, you can guess. It means we have made them become um, stem cells again. Pluripotent refers to the ability of these cells to become any number of kinds of cells, like an embryonic stem cell, any number of the 220 that your body could conceivably become. And if if we could harvest my own cells and turn them into stem cells again, for transplantation, there, there's no rejection possibilities. Right. They are the perfect kind of modeling clay out of which I could make anything that I could then put back into an adult body for therapy. Right. This is the really exciting potential about this technique. Now, the question is, the scientists have been able to induce this pluripotency again or induce the ability for the turning back the clock to get it to act like a stem cell that could become anything. But we don't yet know exactly how that happens. I can tell you how they induce it. Um, but they don't yet know why that happens. And they will need to study this so they can figure out, can we really control this process as well as we'd like to? And are these induced 
pluripotent stem cells really as as variable and powerful a tool as embryonic stem cells appear to be when it comes to developing disease therapies. Just as a proof of concept, there's a, a discussion in the article about what it really is is a cure uh, in a mouse model for sickle cell disease, where adult cells from the mouse are reprogrammed to not have the specific genetic mutation that accounts for sickle cell disease. And sickle cell is in some ways the the best kind of condition to test these therapies with because it is a single mutation. Right. And so it's you know exactly what you're trying to fix. Something like heart disease, you know, may be so multifactorial that that it's not a good testing ground for this kind of thing. But sickle cell is perfect. And so they transplant these cells that have had the genetic error corrected back into the mouse and the mouse is and those cells grow and multiply and take their place in the mouse and the mouse is cured i mean that's that's actually a genetic therapy cure right i i think this is among the wonderful potentials of this you know one of the things i'm very intrigued by is the whole tissue engineering for replacement organs also. Because as, as you know so well, Steve, we don't have enough organs to replace the organs people need. And there, if, if you are lucky enough to get a kidney that's been donated or some other organ or tissue, then you have to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life, costing thousands and thousands of dollars. So if you could take your own skin cell and through lab techniques – Restart the clock on that. Just the potent, like you said, the potential there to act as a kind of clay that you can mold into anything is really a powerful idea. As usual, though, in science, it's a little harder to do than one might think. You can express the idea really clearly, but the techniques that are all involved are very um, sensitive and subtle. The way we're talking about restarting the clock, how do they even do that? I, I haven't talked to you about that yet. They insert... They've, they've identified a, number, a small number of genes, and they started with mouse research, but it, it's since been replicated in, in some other cells. And they insert these genes into the cells because these are the genes that seem to be active in the embryonic stage but not later. So they took a – not a guess, but we'll call it a uh, – they had a hypothesis that perhaps these genes that were only active during the embryonic stage – would help revert the cell. And indeed, that's how it worked. It did revert the cell. Now, why did it exactly work that way? What are the messages that these cells are conveying to each other? How does it then, how is that actually different, if it is, from an embryonic stem cell? We don't yet know. But it's very, it's very intriguing. It's been replicated many times. So it does seem like a very fruitful potential to explore. That's really interesting. I mean, all they did was basically, it's like if you're looking at a graphic equalizer, and you see where all the settings are. And there's another stereo in the in the room. And you say, well, I don't really know what each individual thing there does, but I'm just going to make this graphic equalizer look just like that one and adjust all the dials. And son of a gun, the same sound comes out. Right. And that's what they did with the genes. Just, let's have this gene on, this gene on, this gene on, and these genes off. And what's happening when we do that? We have no idea. But we know that it works. And you might also say to me, Marriott, how do they get those genes in there? And what they do is they, they use 
a kind of a retrovirus as the delivery mechanism because viruses, hey, they know how to get into cells and deliver a payload. And the question then becomes, are there any after effects from using it, uh, from using a virus? There was one mouse experiment where uh, the delivery of, of uh, genetic components using retroviruses created some latent cancer problems later. So while we have a delivery method and while we have an intriguing technique, there are certainly a lot of questions that still need to be resolved. One of the other things you can do with the induced pluripotent stem cells is create mouse models for, or, or uh, tissue models, I should say, for disease. So you can take a an adult cell, and when you induce the pluripotency, you can give it whatever condition you're interested in studying, so that the the tissue that grows out of that cell, which would only then remain tissue, you wouldn't be transplanting it, it would just be for lab work, all that tissue would show all the symptoms of tissue in, for example, type 1 diabetes. Right. This is an excellent point. This is very intriguing, although maybe it sounds less immediately obvious why it's a benefit. The pure fact is you can't just take human tissue out willy-nilly from patients who are suffering, and you can't just test, you know, put new pharmaceuticals or new drugs on cells and watch how the cells react in human tissue routinely. I mean, there are ways to do that, but it's expensive, and you have to make sure that you acquire the materials and the tissue in certain prescribed ways. If you could have the flexibility to change the course of the disease in the, you know, in the Petri dish, so to speak, or take somebody, take a small sample of somebody's tissue and then grow larger amounts of it so that you could then study it specifically, you would have the ability to explore lots of drugs in a faster time frame and more efficiently and probably more cheaply. Let's talk about uh, flying cars. No, not flying cars. There are no flying cars. It's the next best thing. Actually, there are flying cars, but they're they're few and far between, thank goodness. But... um, they're, the flying cars that the Jetsons had, we really still don't have, but the magnetic levitating trains are really a coming. They are really a coming, and there's an article in this issue called High Speed Rail that tells all about how they're a coming and why they're a coming. And if I could just digress for just one minute, one of the things that tickles me about this article is I was I was reflecting on the first issue of Scientific American in 1845. Do you know what's on the cover of the first issue of Scientific American in 1845? Mean, I've seen it many times, but I can't conjure it up in my head right now. On the the, the above the fold image, um, there is a new technology that's displayed, and it's, it's an August issue. I'm thinking of this because I just want to mention to everybody: in August is our 165th anniversary. Is an improved railroad car. And one of the improvements about that railroad car, this latest technology in 1845, was that it was aerodynamically designed so that it would move more quickly through the atmosphere. And burn less coal. And burn less coal. (laughs) And here today, 165 years later almost, we are talking about ways to make trains move through and burn, you know, for us in general – to burn less coal. Now we we call it carbon more than we would call it coal and save energy and save time. And high-speed trains are one way to do it. And then the other way, you mentioned maglev trains, a little more futuristic, but really are a common. And so high-speed trains, I mean, really high-speed, not like we have the Acela in the Northeast connecting Boston and D.C. And and it's 
called a high-speed train, but it's really But it not. isn't really. I mean, the Acela, which I have to say I love that train. Just rode it two weeks ago down to D.C. It's a lovely trip with a nice view. But the Acela, which could conceivably travel at up to 150 miles an hour or so, it's designed that way, actually only averages about 70 miles an hour in the corridor between Boston and Washington because the tracks can't support faster speeds. And it's sharing the tracks with other commuter trains, well, commuter trains, other Amtrak lines and freight trains. Right, which, which are of just course. sidling along. Right. And so, you know, for us, that, that feels nice and fast. But when we speak of high-speed trains, we speak of 150 miles an hour and faster. And there are, there are none of those, at those speeds in the U.S., of course, there are common, fairly common in other countries. They, they exist in Japan and in China and in, in places in Europe where you can go. And I've ridden the, uh, the the bullet train from Osaka to Tokyo. It's a marvelous experience to be cruising along at 200 miles an hour and have a very smooth ride and watch the, the ground whip by you. It's, it's quite extraordinary. How is it so smooth? Well, one of the tricks of high-speed trains and one of the big limitations, certainly for us here in the U.S., is that they are they really can't tolerate very much variation in in inclination. So as the train's driving along has to be the rail has to be extremely straight. And the gradients we have, particularly in the west part of the US, don't generally permit those kinds of speeds. So the the we're talking about like it is perfectly flat. It's perfectly the bed flat. on which a high speed train is running. And the uh, the trains in Japan have this this army of inspectors that goes right. out on a daily basis. Right. The other problem with high-speed train travel, thanks for bringing that up, is that it's murder on the hardware. And so if you're going 150, 200 miles an hour down the track with metal, tri- metal wheels against the metal track, you're abusing both parts. So you have problems with the, the track maintenance, which you mentioned in Japan, Every night, this army of, of maintenance workers gets out and, and inspects and corrects about 12 miles of track. It's about 3,000 workers. And it's, it's an enormous investment, but they do that so that they can make sure all those trains are able to keep running. The other problem with it, we mentioned the track problem, is the problem on the wheels and hardware itself. Something simple like wet leaves in the fall can grind wheels to be flat on one side or even impede the train from moving forward. Yeah, I was on a train going to, from New York to Boston, and we hit a patch of wet leaves in Rhode Island coming out of a scheduled stop, and we had to actually go backwards about three miles and then work up ahead of steam so that we could get over that patch of wet leaves. And the, that cost that added about an hour to a four-hour trip. And that, that was because we were on a tiny upgrade, probably 1% or less. And those, you know, things like wet leaves, they cause enormous maintenance problems as well. They can square off the sides of the wheels. And trains in general, though, have to be uh, on a grade of usually 2%, maybe you can push it to 3%. But if you go to the maglevs, then you can really kick it up and you can get to a 10% grade and still have pretty good efficiency. Right. Maglev, maglev trains, which are much more expensive, obviously, to build. It's a big infrastructure investment. Could solve the grade problem from, if you wanted to, say, build a train from L.A. to Las Vegas, you'd be able to negotiate that a lot better if you had a maglev option because it can take those higher, steeper grades. 
And there are now concrete plans to build L.A. to Las Vegas uh, high-speed trains, Tampa to Orlando, mm-hmm. and L.A. to San Francisco. The federal government set aside among the stimulus monies a, I think, a package of some $8 billion dedicated to funding high-speed trains in various corridors where train travel would really be helpful. Train travel has a a sweet spot, as the article explains, between 100 miles distance and 500 miles distance between two points. So in the case of going from, you know, uh, L.A. to to Las Vegas, you have an entertainment center on the one side and a population center on the other, and it's right in that sweet spot for mileage distance. It seems like a great opportunity. And likewise, the Orlando to Tampa um, route that you mentioned is just much easier to do that than it is to, to have train set up, rather, than it is to either try to fly between locations or, or drive. And we have a table in the article that compares the uh, the 320 mile stretch between Tokyo and Osaka, and it has the the comparison of the the cost train plane car, the the time spent and the CO2 emitted. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the train works for these particular distances that we're talking about 100 to 500 miles. It just beats driving your car or taking an airplane ride on every one of those measures. The cost of the journey for that for that distance by car, you you um, in the table you mentioned is two hundred dollars. The plane is a little bit more, two hundred twenty five, but the train is a lot less, one hundred and thirty dollars, and you're going two hundred miles an hour, so you you get there pretty quickly. In fact, how how fast do you get there? You get there in you know less than, let's see, the the car ride takes about six hours and forty five minutes, and the train time is two hours and twenty five minutes. It's an enormous improvement, and it's cheaper. And it's it's actually quicker than the plane door to door because you're not counting all the time spent going through security. Right, and and best of all, from the planet health standpoint, the carbon emitted. If you're driving your car that same distance, it was 209 pounds of carbon emitted, but the train ride only 50 pounds for this high speed train. A pleasant ride, as a, I've said, I've taken it myself. It's a it's a lovely ride and very quick. 150 million passengers every year on the on the Japanese bullet train. So the the trains we're talking about for the U.S. There's really no new technology that's being developed for this. It's just doing it. Right. It's a matter of deciding that we can afford to make the investment, the several billion dollars overall for for the various routes around the United States. And the the article also has a nice map that shows what routes are being planned and what the status is of each of them. Probably the earliest action we'll see is in California, where it looks like they may be in construction on a high-speed line next year. All right, so uh, we're going to see these trains. Uh, speaking of seeing, we have an article called Uncanny Sight in the Blind, and there's a phenomenon called blind sight, which I had never heard of till this article. And why don't you explain what it is and and how they think it works. Right. One of the things I just love about the brain, any brain, is that we all have these things and use them every day and we have no idea how how they work in many levels and how they continue to surprise. And here's a case where the brain, you know, it sounds stranger than fiction. How could you have something called blind sight, which I'll explain in a second, how can you not be able to consciously see and yet see things? 
So blindside is somebody says, I don't see anything. I'm completely blind. Right. You throw a ball at them and they catch it. Right. They can, but they can't tell you why they caught it or what they detected because the, the visual uh, centers are interfered with. Let me back up for a quick second. What, what can, and this is a rare condition and one of the, you know, one of the puzzling things about blindside, one of the reasons why it's taken us a while to figure it out is it doesn't happen that often. There's a patient who's mentioned in the article who, because of a couple of strokes, lost his the power of using his visual cortex, your visual processing centers that you're consciously aware of. So I'm looking across the table at Steve right now, and visually I know I'm looking at Steve. Somebody with blind sight would not see you, Steve, would not know that you are, um, you know, two feet across, three feet across from me, but could potentially detect the emotions. Like right now you're looking very concentrating at me. Earlier we were smiling or, or you know, talking about other things. person with blindsight can actually sometimes detect that emotion. They can't tell you why they saw it. They can't explain to you what it was they, they noticed or detected. It is not conscious. It is unconscious perception of things in the visual environment. They could see the, the expression on my face with some part of their brain, but right. their visual sense does not see it. Right. So they have no conscious awareness. Let me give you an example because I think this is instructive. There is this patient, and in many cases in this kind of literature, they just name patients with initials. So the initials they use for this patient is T or TN. He was mentioned in the article. And TN was a patient who I mentioned had a couple of strokes and lost his visual perception. He was blind, blind to you and me. You could, you, you know, he could not see any, anything or not aware of seeing anything. The, um, the authors put um, TN in a hallway, in a corridor, and that corridor had a number of obstacles in it and told TN that there was nothing in this corridor, that it was an open corridor, just walk down it. And TN walked around, all, took a meandering path and walked around all of the obstacles in the corridor. At the end, they asked him, how did you navigate that corridor? And TN had no knowledge of having taken a meandering path. He just said, I just walked through the empty corridor. This is an amazing aspect of, of blindsight. He did not know there was anything there, and yet some part of his brain perceived this and negotiated a course through this corridor filled with obstacles. So is there anything we're learning from this that maybe can be applied for for restoration or an appreciation of the environment for blind people or any kind of other applications? Well, I think this is, this is early days for applications. Some of the things that people with blindsight have been able to detect, which is interesting in the sense that it it sheds some light on how the brain works. They have been able to detect colors, motion, in addition to the things that I mentioned already, simple shapes, and as I mentioned, emotions. So they can tell, they can't tell you why, but they can tell somebody is upset in front of them. And one of the things that this does, at least for brain scientists, is it identifies what area the brain might be perceiving things that we didn't know about. We don't yet know definitively with blindsight what area of the brain is doing the detecting, but a top candidate is um, an area called the superior colliculus, which is located in the midbrain, quite far from the visual centers. It's just it's it's an intriguing finding that will let us ask new questions about how the brain works. 
if you know if this area of the midbrain is doing perception, what else is it perceiving? What else is it doing? So those are three of the articles. Also, there's material in the issue on neutrinos and the the amazing cassava plant, which researchers are hoping can uh, can be a staple food for for poor people around the world. And we always have our fifty, one hundred, one hundred and fifty years ago column as compiled by, of course, Daniel C. Schlenhoff. Thank you, Dan. uh, Thank you, Dan. May 1860, a scant 150 years ago, we have an article. And let me just just read you this, this little snippet from this article that we ran in the May 1860 issue. We would yet advise to set a room apart in mansions with the title of Laboratory. I'm sure they said laboratory. (laughs) Or the more ancient one of still room. The amount of instruction that can be derived from a private laboratory is far more than at first sight can be conceived, and the entertainment, changeable as a kaleidoscope, is intellectually considered immeasurably superior either to crochet or Berlin work, which we explain is embroidery. The delicate manipulations of chemical experiments are, well, even better suited to their physical powers than to the sterner sex. And to the ladies, therefore, we commend the charge of becoming the chefs of the modern still room. And this was in an article apparently called The Art of Perfumery, or Perfumery. And uh, so what we were telling the, the rich people out there was to basically have a, a chem lab in your house where you could entertain yourself in the evenings by mixing things together and watching them explode. <laughs> I got very excited when I read that as a, as a person who, of course, grew up with a chemistry set. My, my father probably would have preferred it if I had limited myself to perfumery other than the other things that I created that stank up the house. Which uh, which room of your mansion did you did you do your experiments in? <laughs> so I was reading this and I was thinking, oh, very good. So we're recommending a chem lab in the house in your mansion, and then I saw the sterner sex and I thought, which one is that? Oh, yes, that's the man. And then I got to the women and I thought, are we actually going to recommend that women have their own home chem lab? How neat that is for 1860. I thought actually this was pretty close to that. Limited to perfumes, but okay, it, nice for a woman to have a, a chem lab in the house. Yes, in its own way, it is a little bit progressive. It is a little bit progressive. But as somebody who had my own little chem set in the house, not in a mansion laboratory, but in the basement usually, or get outside, as my father would say, I was, I was pleased to see that we were recommending some science in the home. I do believe in that. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the Mont Blanc Pen Company is releasing a line of pens with one-of-a-kind ink that can be traced directly to the owner. Story two, half of all the people who have ever lived to the age of 65 are currently alive. Story three, gorillas at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Florida have been taught to take their own blood pressure. And story four, an asteroid has been found to be coated in a thin layer of ice of the water variety. And time's up. Story one is true. Mont Blanc is releasing a new pen line in which each pen will have its own personalized ink. 
They note that quote the authenticity of Montblanc Personal Code Inc. will be verified by Montblanc upon the presentation of a document, letter, or memento bearing the owner's handwriting. A forensic test will then reliably prove if Montblanc Personal Code Inc. has indeed been utilized. Of course, we won't know whether he had a gun to his head when he wrote up that new will. Story two is true. Half of all the people in human history who have reached the age of 65 are currently alive, according to an article by our friends at New Scientist magazine. And half of those 65 and overs are right now in a mall parking lot in Florida. And story four is true. Spectroscopic analysis shows that the big asteroid called 24 Themis is coated in a thin layer of frozen H2O, which lends credence to the idea that the water on Earth may have been brought here by many such bodies that crashed into the planet when it was young. For more, check out the April 29th episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story three about gorillas taking their own blood pressure is totally bogus. But what is true is that the gorillas at Disney's Animal Kingdom do now actually assist in their own ultrasound heart exams. The gorillas used to be sedated to get medical tests like ultrasound, but veterinarians have trained the primates to adopt and hold certain poses, allowing technicians to get ultrasound measurements of the animals' hearts from safe on the other side of the bars of the enclosure. Training was simple, positive reinforcement using food treats. Next up, they are really going to try to teach gorillas how to help vets take their blood pressures. The toughest part: teaching them to stop puffing up the blood pressure cuff before it explodes. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read our in-depth report on the mother-baby bond. That's triple tax-free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky, which is also my Twitter handle. Thanks for clicking on us. 